Well, if you study the history of warfare, you'll see that in every engagement, there's always a decisive battle. Uh, one particular engagement that breaks the back of an enemy and ultimately determines the outcome of the war. I don't know if you've ever been to the Pacific War Museum. It's just to the north of us in Fredericksburg, Texas. And if you go through there, you'll see an example of that because in it, it, it talks about the accounts of the numerous land and sea battles that took place. But the, the one that ultimately decided the outcome of the war with Japan happened at Midway in June of 1942. And when that battle was over, the United States had lost one aircraft carrier and about 150 planes. But Japan had lost four aircraft carriers and all of the planes and skilled pilots that went with it. The war with Japan continued for another three years. There were countless casualties. There were numerous other battles that took place. But Japan would later admit that its back was broken and its ability to win the war happened at Midway. As Christians, we're engaged in a raging spiritual battle, one that is ongoing, one where there are numerous casualties that continue to take place, like what happened to uh, the Christians in Egypt on Palm Sunday as two churches were bombed. And yet, while the battle continues to rage here, it's already decided. As believers, we are on the winning side because about 2,000 years ago, the decisive battle took place at the cross where Jesus defeated sin, death, and Satan. Things that we'll remember, commemorate on Good Friday as we think back and celebrate the sacrifice of our Savior and ultimately his victory that was seen on Easter Sunday as we celebrate that the tomb was empty this next Sunday. But while the battle continues to rage, while we're on the winning side, what God has told us is he hasn't left us unprepared. But he's equipped us to face our enemy, as we'll see today, turning in our Bible to Ephesians chapter 6. As we look at Ephesians chapter 6, we see what God has given to us to uh, fight our enemy, our foe, in this day. Ephesians 6, 10 through 13 tells us, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Now, we see that Paul is bringing his letter to a close, this epistle that he's written to the believers in Ephesus, because he, he begins by telling us, finally. And as he does so, what he's doing is speaking, pointing back to something he's already told us earlier, which is the power of God. In Ephesians 1, 19 through 20, we read there, uh, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the workings of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ Jesus, whom he raised from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. You see, it is God's power that raised Christ from the dead. It is God's power that exalted him to the highest place in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. And it is this power that is available to us as Christians. Now, in order to partake of it, God says we have to do something. We have to take it and put it on. He's given us his protection, but it requires an action on our part. 
The Greek word that you see in your Bible here where it says to be strong has the idea of clothing oneself with strength as you would put on a garment. As you got up and got dressed this morning, this is the same picture as he tells us uh, to be strong. He reiterates this by telling us to put on the full armor of God. This word put on is, is the word that we use for folding a letter and putting it in an envelope. It literally means uh, to hide within. So this picture of being clothed with the armor of God is where we are, we are hidden within it. We are clothed uh, with what God has given to us. Now in our passage, Paul's using this image of a soldier's armor. And the reason he, he's picturing a soldier's armor is because this is something everybody in the first century would have been familiar with. Remember, he's writing this letter uh, from an imprisonment in, in Rome, and he's, he's writing to the Ephesians who, who were used to seeing Roman soldiers walking around on the street. All throughout the empire, you would, you would see soldiers And they were dressed in this full armor that he's describing for us here. It would be like today if Paul were writing, he would say, picture a policeman. And you would think of a a policeman wearing a badge in a uniform. And you would say that uh, he has a baton and he has a a big belt. It's called a Sam Brown. And on it, we would say there's a a taser and handcuffs and a gun and extra bullets and and handcuffs and a radio. And you would be able to describe uh, how how a policeman, how he or she is equipped in our day. And what Paul is saying is picture a Roman soldier. And remember, as Paul is writing this letter, he has one chained to his arm, so he's able to look over at the the armament that a a soldier has and as he's describing it. Now, today, we're not going to go into depth on each piece of armor. Uh, When we come back after Easter Sunday, we're going to walk through and talk about each individual piece. But today, what I want to do is focus more on our foe, on the enemy that we're battling, on Satan. As, uh, it, when, when it comes to facing an enemy, Storman Norman Schwarzkopf, he was the four-star general who led the U.S. through the early wars in, in the Middle East with Iraq and other, uh, the Desert Storm and, and other battles that were taking place. And Schwarzkopf was interviewed after the successful campaign by Leadership Magazine. It's a Christian-based uh, leadership journal. And, and they asked this four-star general, what does it take to win a war? And Schwarzkopf said, whether we're talking about a spiritual battle or one here on earth, you always have to look at the mission, the enemy, the terrain, and the troops available. He says, you generally know three things if you've done your homework. You know the mission, you know the terrain, and you know the resources available. So the interviewer said, so the variable then is the enemy. Right, Schwarzkopf said. All you can do is make a guess. And if you guess wrong, you make the changes necessary based upon what the enemy is doing. Well, as we look at our passage, you notice that God begins with the mission. He tells us to stand firm. In fact, he repeats this three times in our passage. And this is actually a military term. It was used uh, to describe taking over, holding uh, a, a watch post or a place. It meant to hold a critical position on a battlefield. I want you to notice God doesn't say attack Satan. Satan's already been defeated. That happened 2,000 years ago at the cross. He's already a defeated enemy. What God says is it is our job as believers to hold the territory that Christ has already taken. And a part of the territory is what we looked at earlier in Ephesians 4.27. There we read that we are not to give the devil an opportunity. 
And you might recall the Greek word for opportunity is tapas. We have a topographical map. And we saw when we looked at it there that it spoke of a place in our heart, in our life. When we come to faith in Christ, we, we say we've given Christ our, our life. We've given our heart to be his home. And we talked about how we're not to have even a little bit of territory we hold back for sin and Satan those little secret places in our life. And so the territory that we're speaking about is not the earth. The battlefield is not this earth. It talked about the the war in the heavenly places. You see, the earth is going to burn up one day. The Bible tells us only two things from our current world exist for eternity, the word of God and the souls of men and women. So the territory that we're told to hold on to is what God has already uh, conquered and taken the hearts and minds of men and women. Now, when it comes to the fight, Schwarzkopf said we're to know our enemy and his tactics, which is what God is talking about in verse 12. There it says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of of wickedness in the heavenly places. We have an enemy. His name is Satan. And we see that there's an army that goes with him here. Now, when it comes to our foe, to Satan, I think that people make two great mistakes. One of those is to underestimate Satan, and the other is to overestimate Satan. Now, let me begin with what I mean by we underestimate him. There's a a Christian researcher by the name of George Barna. And he was uh, talking to believers, taking a, a poll, and in it, Uh, Barna found that 40% strongly agreed with the following statement. Now, remember, these are men and women who said they were believers in Jesus Christ. 40% agreed with the statement that Satan is not a living being, but is simply a symbol of evil. There were another 19% that somewhat agreed with the statement, Satan is not a living being, but but is simply a symbol of evil. So tragically, what that means is almost 60% of those in this poll who said they were Christians were unaware or unwilling to admit that we have a real and active enemy called Satan. Friends, the devil may be out of fashion for some, but he's not out of business. As we look at the Bible, it tells us this in 1 Peter 5.8, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There was an evangelist named Billy Sunday of a past generation. And Billy Sunday said, I know that the devil is real for two reasons. One, because the Bible tells me he's real. And two, because I've done business with him. Now, whether we want to admit it or not, every one of us here has done business with the devil, haven't we? And I can say that because the Bible tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what that means is every one of us has been tempted or given in to some sin or some other uh, way that we've done business with the devil. We're all sinners. We've all fallen into his traps and snares. And when, when it comes to who he is, he's real. He is a real entity who is active in seeking somebody to devour Now, I said that one of the other mistakes that people make, the second mistake is some people, um, uh, I said we underestimate him or we overestimate him. Now, you may be sitting here saying, Roger, I know he's real, but you underestimate him because you think in terms of him as maybe somebody that you're in charge of. We see this with these TV preachers. 
Uh, a lot of them are shysters that you see on TV. And, and you've, you've seen them acting like they're commanding Satan, like he's some little whipping boy that they control. And the Bible is, is very clear that we are not in control of him. God is in control of him. I don't fear the devil, but I respect him. And I'll tell you why I don't have to fear him. Uh, because we have God within us, as we're about to talk more about. But he's real, and some people act like they're in control of him, and he's not. Uh, now, when it comes to, to who he is, uh, let me tell you more about him. He doesn't like this, by the way. He likes to work in the darkness. He doesn't like us to think about who he is. He doesn't like us to know about him. Uh, but he's, he's a roaring lion, as we've already seen. One of the other things we find out about him in the Bible, he's called the devil in verse 11. That word means a slanderer. And the way he slanders us, we find in Revelation 12.10, it says he accuses God's people day and night before the throne of God. His job is to go before the Lord and remind the Lord of our sin. Now, the Bible says God has removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. But he's always trying to say, we don't deserve to be in heaven because we're sinners. And Jesus Christ responds to him by showing the nail scars in his hands and feet and the, the hole in his side where the spear was thrust. And he says, I've paid that penalty of death. That's why we can come into the presence of God in heaven. We've been invited in because we are covered in his righteousness, washed clean by the blood of his son. He's called Satan. This is a word that means our adversary. Uh, he's called the tempter, the deceiver the father of lies, the destroyer, the evil one, the serpent, and the great dragon. Those are all names that speak of his evil character, of his destructive nature. Uh, so many of us think of him as this evil, hideous being, which he is. But there's another side of Satan that many of us don't think about. He can camouflage himself as well. We're told in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. You see, we're, we're used to thinking of the devil as this little red-horned guy with a pitchfork that we see in cartoons, right? He's this little funny man that we read in the funny papers. But that's not who he is. He is called in Ezekiel twenty-eight fourteen the anointed cherub who covers. He was the highest created angel given a place in the presence of God in the throne room of heaven. And his sin of pride caused him to want to take God's place. He said, I will raise my place above that of the Almighty. And that was that sin of pride that caused him to be thrown out. But he is the anointed cherub, the highest, most powerful angel created. He's called Lucifer, which means the shining one. He's called the star of the morning, the sun of the dawn. He is a beautiful, powerful angelic being. As I said, friends, he's not a little whipping boy we control. He's this powerful, created uh, devil who is both a destroyer as well as one who can camouflage himself. Verse 12 tells us that, that Satan was not alone in his fall. We read about all of those other powers. What that is, friends, is the angelic army. Angels have been created with different purposes and places and roles. And Satan, as I said earlier, was the highest created angel. Well, he has a third of the angelic beings fell with him in his, in his sin. Now, the good news is that means there are more good angels still with God. And beyond that, God is the most powerful. He can wipe them all out. 
uh, with, with simply a word of his mouth. So we don't have to fear uh, this, uh, this uh, fallen minion army that is out there. Now, in terms of this highest created angel called Satan, uh, God has an angelic army. As I said, the good angels who didn't fall, and the highest one in God's army is called Michael the archangel. He's, he's the commander of the angelic army, and there's a place where the two, Michael the archangel and Satan, came toe-to-toe in a battle. And when the battle took place, listen to how it, how it unfolded in Jude chapter 1, verse 9. In Jude 1, 9, it says, But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. You see, there's this battle between these angelic powers. And rather than going toe-to-toe, Michael simply stood back and he said, I'm going to call in air superiority. The Lord rebuke you. And God won the battle right there. It's why we don't have to fear our enemy, Satan. Do you realize that you have the very presence of God within you? We saw earlier in, in, in this epistle how we have the Holy Spirit resident within us. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, And do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord and the Spirit of God dwells within you? The Holy Spirit himself is resident within every man, woman, boy, and girl who is a believer in Christ. And because of that, 1 John 4.4 4 tells us, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you, the Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world, our enemy Satan. We don't have to fear him because we have the resident power and presence of God within us. And God has given us this armor that we are to put on as we do battle, as we stand on the front lines and we face our foe. Now, when it comes to Satan running around the world, um, he is a roaring lion seeking somebody to devour. But again, we don't have to fear him because God is in control. We may think he's loose, but God has him on a leash. Have you ever read through the book of Job? In the book of Job, you see our enemy at work. It tells us he was roaming about upon the earth and he came before God. It says as the sons were presenting themselves, he came and God said, where have you been? He said, well, I've been roaming around the earth. And this is where, you know, sometimes I read the Bible and I go, wow, I, I would not want to be some of these characters like Job because Job was an upright and righteous man. And do you remember what God did? He calls Job out. And he says, well, have you considered my servant Job? you're thinking, great God, you know. And Satan says, oh yeah, Job, he's a guy who worships you, he follows you because you've blessed him. He's healthy, he's, he's wealthy, he's got the world, you know, at his footstep, at, at his, as a footstool. He's, he's doing great, of course he's following you. And God says, well, you can, you can mess with Job if you want. But he puts boundaries in place. First thing he says is, well, take his wealth. So he comes in and he wipes out Job's worldly wealth. And, and, and then his kids are, are killed. House collapses, children are killed, and, and Job still worships the Lord. And Satan says, oh, yeah, well, let me touch him. You know, it's easy because that's outside of him, but let me, let me at Job himself, let me mess with his personal flesh, and then he'll turn his back on you. And you remember what God said? Go ahead. Only don't kill him, right? God keeps putting these boundaries in place. And, and Job, you'll remember, is stricken with boils. He's suffering. His wife even stands there and says, what do you, why don't you just curse God and die? Why are you continuing to hold on uh, to worshiping him? And Job never turned his back on God. 
And as we, I tell you all of that background because it, it tells us when we read a promise like we find in 1 Corinthians 10.13, how God can be trusted. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, it says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tested, it says, He will provide the way of escape so that you can stand up under it. You see, in that verse, we see all kinds of things. One, you're told sometimes as Christians, well, when you become a believer, life is going to be blessed and easy and no problem. That isn't what at all the Bible says. It says you will be tempted. It says there will be trials. There will be things you will face. Uh, But as that happens, we're also given the promise that God is in control. He sets the boundaries. He says he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Now, we could spend a whole sermon talking about that. Does God give us more than we can handle or not? Because many times we think we're at the breaking point and we can't stand up under what we're facing. But the Bible tells us in those moments where you think you have nowhere to go and, and, and you're about to collapse under everything, God says, there's an exit door. There's a way of escape. He says, I know what you can handle. And I won't let you go beyond that. But even if you feel you're at that point, God says, hit the eject button. And escape from it. The Bible says flee temptation. Don't stand there and go toe-to-toe with it. Flee from it. And so as we, we look at this, you may say then, Roger, why do we still sin? If all of that is true, why do we sin? Well, we're the human factor in that, friends. We have a free will. We have a choice. And we make bad choices in many cases. Consequences come because of our bad choices or sometimes because of the bad choices other people make. We live in a broken and sinful world. We live in a world where Romans says it's crying out for redemption. Even the world understands it's broken, which is why God will ultimately destroy this place with fire and recreate it in perfection. Now, in terms of trying to understand how we fall to Satan, let me use the illustration of fishing. Um, Let's talk about how how, uh, bait uh, equals catching fish, okay? Again, I said one of the mistakes we make is we underestimate our enemy. So this is the picture I think some of us have of the devil, right? He's this little barefoot boy wearing a straw hat and a can of worms and a cane pole. And he's asleep at the wheel. And we say, well, that's, that's our enemy. Just don't mess with him and he won't mess with us. But a better picture is this. Satan is like a pro bass fisherman with a tricked out boat that has all the latest tools on it. He's got a depth finder, he's got a GPS, he's got, he's got all the, the tools. And if you've ever been on a, on a boat with a guide, you know on their GPS, they have places marked where they say, this is where fish strike, this is where I've had my last big catch. And Satan operates the same way. He knows you, he knows me. And he says, I know where the last big catch was. I know what it was that tempted Roger or somebody else here this morning. And he goes back there to that place. See, see, we have these sins. We think we're running these little secret back trails that nobody knows about, but our enemy Satan knows about them. And like a, a deer hunter who sets out a feeder with corn and there's a stand nearby, he says, I've got this place staked out and I'm waiting for you to come back. And he tempts us and we come in and he's going to take a trophy one day. And that's you or me. And, and he's got these places marked out for us. Now, the way that he attacks us, uh, the way that he goes after us is different because we're all different. 
If you were to go fishing with me and I were to bring out my tackle box, as I open it up, you'd look in there and you'd go, why do you have all that stuff? I've got, I've got neon power bait worms. I've got rattle traps. I've got, you know, jigs. I've got all kinds of different uh, lures in there, billy bass lures and things. And, I, you know, I've got some stuff that's so fake and gaudy. You go, what fish would ever go after this? I mean, it's just flashy. That doesn't even look like bait. Fish will hit different things at different times. That's why I have so many different colored worms, Kim. You know, my wife's like, you don't need any more, you know, stuff in your tackle box, right? And it's like Satan, he has a well-stocked tackle box. And he knows what tempts one, will not tempt another, will not tempt a different person. Or what you hit last time, he's going to use a different bait because he knows it's a different set of circumstances for you. And, and if you were to go fishing with me, as I'm throwing these different kinds of bait, there's one thing that all of them share in common. It's that they have a hook. And the hook can be hidden behind little streamers. It can be buried in a worm. It can be different things, but there's always a hook because when that fish goes after the bait, it becomes dinner. It becomes prey, right? It bites into it. It thinks it's going to get a nice, satisfying meal. And what ends up happening is it gets a hook. And as you look at what it is that you're tempted by right now, men and women, as you think about the things, these little trails you're running, I want to remind you that Satan is there dangling some bait in front of you. And while you think you're about to get a tasty meal, there's a hook in it. And what looks like a satisfying meal is really stink bait with a big treble hook in it. And he's going to get you. In terms of what it is that he uses to fish for, 1 John 2.16 tells us this. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, the Bible says is not from the Father, but is from the world. And you think in terms of the stuff that Satan uses to tempt and attack us, it's, it's summarized in all three of those, isn't it? The lust of the flesh. Think in terms of all the stuff that we go after in the world. You know, God has given us stuff that's great. But when we abuse it, it becomes dangerous. The lust of the flesh, that can speak of any desire you have. Food, food's a good thing, right? We all need to eat to survive. We all enjoy most kinds of food. But if you have too much of it, it becomes gluttony. It becomes dangerous to our health. Sexual intimacy, it's a great desire God has given to us. And yet again, if we take it outside of God's design of one man, one woman in a monogamous committed relationship as husband and wife, then it becomes something dangerous to us. And this is what Satan does. He takes things God has given us, he counterfeits it, he twists it, and and something that was given as a gift becomes uh, the bait that is going to catch us. The lust of the eyes. It describes the things we covet that we don't have. Money is one of those. Money's a great thing. We work for a living, we get money, we're able to buy things, we're able to support God's work, we're able to do lots of stuff with money. Money alone is a neutral entity. It's not bad or good, it's what we do with it that determines whether it's good or bad. And so when you think in terms of of lusting after money, 1 Timothy 6.9 warns us, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, this idea of catching, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction, the boastful pride of life. That's the one that took Satan down, isn't it? I'm going to exalt my throne above that of the Almighty. 
And you can think in terms of so many things that we go after that in and of themselves, ambition is not a bad thing, but when it has us and it takes over, this, this, this controls and destroys us. Now, as we think in terms of Satan, he's a powerful and crafty foe. He's been fishing the waters of this world since the beginning of time. So does that mean that we're, we're at a huge disadvantage, we're in trouble because he's going to get us just like he's gotten everybody else? It doesn't have to be that way because we have a huge advantage. One of those is that we know how he works. 2 Corinthians 11 tells us we are not ignorant of his schemes. The Greek word translated as schemes is the Greek word methodia. It's where we get our word methods. It means we know how our enemy operates. Do you remember how the U.S. won the Battle of Midway? They broke the code. They knew what was coming. They knew Japan had this ambush set, and they were able to use it against them and defeat the enemy because they knew his battle plan. We know how Satan works. He's crafty and cunning, but he's not original. In Ephesians 6.11, it says we are to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, the same thing. Now, the word denotes that which is cunning, and, and that's who he is. He's the deceiver, the father of lies. Now, our enemy knows about us, and he knows that not everyone will fall for fake and flashy lures. Like I said, if you were to look at some of the bait in my tackle box, you go, what is going to bite that? And some of you are saying, Roger, I don't fall for that fake, flashy stuff in the world. And so what Satan does is he knows if he comes at us with a blatant temptation or or some blatant heresy, we're going to say, I reject that. I can see that. You've heard about how you boil a frog to death. If you put it in boiling water, it'll, it'll feel the temperature of the water and immediately jump out. But if it's lukewarm and you begin to slowly turn the temperature up, uh, the frog just swims around oblivious to the fact that the water's getting hotter and hotter and it boils to death. And so Satan knows that. Some he can just throw right in and get right away, but others he, he's learned he has to be crafty. He has to be subtle because we'll reject this temptation. Let me show you how he caught the first man and the woman named Eve and Adam in the book of Genesis. If you look at Genesis 2, 16 through 17, we read, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Okay, that's what God said. You got that in your mind? Now, look at how Satan comes in and he begins to fish. It says in Genesis 3, 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Did you catch it? You see, God said, You can eat from any tree except one. Did you see what Satan did? Boy, God is really unfair. He said, here's all this great stuff right in front of you, and you can't have any of it. And did you notice how he also left out the consequence where God said, well, when you do that, you're going to die? You see what Satan does? You can use the example that we've already talked about of sexual intimacy. The world tells us God is a prude. God has given this, this, well, they don't even say God has given it. They say there's this great thing called sex. And, and God says, no touchy, you can't do that. That's, that's not good. Is that what the Bible says? The Bible tells us in, if, in uh, Song of Solomon 5.1, he's speaking to uh, the husband facing 
uh, the situation of marriage, and he says, eat, friends, drink and imbibe deeply, O lovers. What God says is, I created sex. The world forgets to tell us that. And then God says, I gave it to you. And I gave it to you to be enjoyed within the context of a husband and a wife in a relationship, and you can have all you want. See, what the world says is God's unfair. There's this great thing out there, and he says, you can't, can't touch. Don't do that. And what God says is, no, I've put boundaries in place, not because I'm, I'm being mean to you, but because I love you so much, I want my best for you. God tells us in Hebrews 13.3, marriage is to be held in high honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. He says, you're to save the gift of intimacy for your relationship with your husband or wife in marriage. And if you do that, he says, there will not be the heartbreak that comes when you're used and cast aside. He says, you won't have to worry about the unwanted pregnancies that the world is always trying to say, now what do you do? He says, you don't have to worry about sexually transmitted diseases. You see what God has done? He said, I've put boundaries in place, not because I'm taking something good from you. It's because I want the best for you. In Ephesians 6.12, we're told for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Yeah, it's a struggle, isn't it? There's that desire out there for the things the world offers, and we say, I want that, but I can't have that. Why can't we have it? Because God says, I've got these boundaries in order to protect you. This word for struggle is used of a wrestling match between two wrestlers. Now, in Greek culture, it's not like wrestling in our day. And I'm not talking about the stuff you see on TV with the, you know, jumping around off the, you know, you've, you've all been there, you've seen it. Real wrestling matches. Remember the Greco-Roman world. This was, this was a high pinnacle of sport. And in that day, they didn't wrestle for points. They wrestled literally for their lives. The, the person who lost a match could be killed. There's a little motivation to perform, right? And even if you were not killed, if they were going to show mercy, they would gouge out your eyes so you would go through life blind. You'd live the rest of your life in darkness. And, and we see this picture of the consequence of, of sin. If we lose this battle with our flesh and sin, God says there's a consequence called death. We read that in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, God says there is a consequence when we lose this struggle with sin called death. But he loved us so much, he came and he said, I want to take care of what you couldn't handle, death, Satan. Christ went to the cross, as we're going to remember Good Friday, to conquer sin, death, and Satan. There's a battle raging that we face, but God says, I've won the battle. I've stepped in. I've washed away your sins with my blood if you turn in faith to me. So if you're here this morning and you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, I invite you to do so. To turn from your sin and to Jesus Christ who paid that penalty of death for you and for me. He offers us a gift of eternal life. He offers us not just what we need to get home to heaven, but he offers us what we need to live this life as we struggle against sin, death, and Satan in this world. He's given us what we need. Verse 13 reminds us of that. He says, therefore, based upon all of this, therefore take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. That command again, when it says to take up, it means to receive the armor and put it on. 
When we receive the gift of eternal life, we're given the Holy Spirit who's resident within us. We can quench his work in our life. We've been given the things we need to win the war, the word of God. We're going to talk about the belt of truth and the sword of the spirit and the things that God has given us next time as we come back to this passage. He's given us what we need. He says, what are you doing with it? Some of us are, are, are falling by the wayside because we're, we're not able to fight the battle. When Rome collapsed, as Rome began to lose its place, uh, it was because the military became so weakened they were not able to continue to do what they had done in the past. Gibbon, who was the commander at the time, complained about the poor readiness of his men for battle. He said because of poor discipline, his troops have fallen out of battle shape. And because of that, they were, they were not able to carry the armor. It weighed a lot. They were not able to bring their equipment, that, that shield and, and all the other equipment we're going to look at next time. And he said they were, they were leaving stuff behind. They were not equipped. And they would go into battle and they would drop things. Think about the, the modern military today. It's why they train soldiers. They go on these, these full turnout marches with all their equipment so they're in battle shape. So when they have to carry their gear into, into battle, they have all the tools at their disposal. And so as a result, many of his troops were, were not able to stand against the attacks. They couldn't, they couldn't defend themselves. We're going to talk next time about that big shield you saw. They had a technique called the testudo, which means the turtle. And you could interlock those shields and create this this moving armament. And it was one of the things that made the Roman army so... um, just so able to overcome enemies, even in open field battles. They could have a miniature moving fort with these interlocking shields. And if you were to cast that stuff aside, then even if some gave way, well, then the whole thing would fall apart. And some of us today as believers are out of battle shape. We, we don't know the word of God like we should. We're, we're not all prayed up. And so when we go into those things, as you face demonic situations, the disciples came to the Lord one time and they said, how come we couldn't cast this demon out? And Jesus said, this only comes out through much prayer. Are you prayed up? Is your battery charged up? Do you know the word of God? Are you able to recall it? Uh, you can't say, just a minute, let me look that up on my iPhone. Uh, where was that? You know, when you're facing a temptation, Job 31.1 tells us, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to gaze lustfully at a, at a woman. Are you able to bring that to your mind and say, mm, I, I promised God I wouldn't do that and turn away? Are you fleeing temptation? This is why some of us are falling. We're not in battle shape. And we're facing a strong and powerful enemy and we're not able to stand firm because we're not using the things that God has given to us. When he tells us that we may be able to resist, the word means to withstand or oppose I said I wasn't going to walk through the pieces of armor, but I want to show you one of those that we see in verse 15. It says, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. When it speaks of shodding your feet, it, it, was, it was talking about the sandals called the caliga that the Roman soldiers would wear. And here you see a picture of it. These are the things that had these straps that wrapped all the way, went up the leg. It wasn't like where your shoes would fly off. These things were tied on. They had thick leather soles that you see were studded with metal. 
These, these were the things that allowed them to go over some of the, the hazards that the enemy would put out. They could even go across hot, uh, coal-laden areas because of the, the thickness of the sole. And those spikes allowed them to stand firm in that open ground. They could plant their feet. And as they put up these, these shields, the testudo, and people were pushing against them, they had a firm footing. And, and, and this is the picture that is given for us. When it talks about the preparation or readiness, it literally means a firm foundation. What is your foundation this morning? Is it the rock of Jesus Christ? Is your faith in him? Or are you like the Bible describes, having built your house on the shifting sands of the world, and it says when the storms come, when, when the hard things happen, is there going to be this collapse because you don't have a firm foundation or you built on the rock of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we're standing on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Satan may be the prince of the power of the air, but we serve the one who is called the prince of peace. Satan has a lot of names, but God has even more powerful names. And when we hear this, that Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace, we heard about what he did for us earlier in Ephesians 2.17. There it said, And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. And this, you'll recall, spoke of the gospel where Jews and Gentiles were saved and they came to faith and they were brought into the family of God and they were made into the new entity called the church. We think of peace as being that period where there's no war, Right? But what God says is there is a raging war, brothers and sisters. But in the midst of it, we can have peace because we're on the firm foundation. And we have the one in us called the Holy Spirit and we've been given the armament and the things that we need to stand firm. It's like what happens when there's a huge hurricane. You've, you've seen those pictures of the, the waves that are crashing and the ships that are at sea being tossed around and, and other things. But oceanographers will tell you that if you go down into the depths of the ocean, even with this storm brewing and, and the, the chaos of everything crashing above, where there's depth, there's peace. The fish are swimming around like nothing's happening. And in the Christian life, we're told to have this abiding relationship where we sink deep roots in, where we have a relationship with the living word, Jesus Christ, and where we're rooted in his word, as our vision statement says, as a church. And as we have that depth, there is peace. I know many of you this morning are facing storms. There's hard things that you're facing, and God doesn't promise us that he will keep us out of the storms, but he promises he will walk with us through the storms. You read in Psalm 23, it says he walks with us. He says, I will take you through the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't leave us there. He told us, I will never leave you or forsake you. He is with you in the midst of the storm. And so God has given us what we need in the midst of a raging spiritual battle or the trials you're facing today to have peace. The peace of God that passes all comprehension. But it only comes to those of us who have that relationship. I want you to think for a moment, what is the worst thing that you think could happen to you here on earth? What is the absolute worst consequence that could come in this lifetime? You'd say death, right? The worst thing that could happen is we would die. This is what Jesus Christ says about death in Luke twelve four, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, there's nothing more they can do to you. 
As you think in terms of our enemy, Satan, and the things that, that he may be able be allowed to do, if the worst thing that happens is you lose your life, you know what Satan becomes? He's simply the elevator boy who takes us to our home in glory. We get to go home where we experience the peace and presence and eternal rewards that God offers to those who are his children. I want you to remember that as Paul is writing this letter, he's in prison, chained to a guard, facing death for his faith. So as Paul talks about the peace of God and the protection and all these things, he knows I may very well end in death. He wrote Philippians. He tells us the same thing for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Paul knew that his life on earth may come to an end, but he says, I'm at perfect peace because I know the Prince of Peace. As we prepare to leave today, I want you to to ask yourself, what is the foundation that you're standing on? Do you have a foundation of faith in Jesus Christ? If you don't, God offers you that gift this morning. He says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. He offers you that gift of eternal life. If you will turn from your sin and to him as your savior this morning. For the rest of us who have come to faith in Christ, he, he says it's not enough that you're saved. You're not to sit. You know, if you're wearing armor, that's kind of awkward apparel to sit in an armchair. Have you ever thought about that? Picture yourself all armored up trying to sit in an easy chair. Is that what it's designed for? No. It's designed to put us on the front line of the battle to stand firm. As you think about those, those gospel shoes we've, we've been talking about, Isaiah 52, 7 says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace, who brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. God has called on us who have received the message of salvation, who have come to faith in Christ, not to sit, soak, and sour. But he says we have shoes on to go and take Uh, the gospel out. Matthew 28 says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. So as we come to a close today, I want you to ask yourself, where are you today? Are you standing on the rock of faith? If you haven't, are you ready to receive that gift? And for those of us who have that gift, are we going to be doing what God calls us to do, to be the messengers of the good news? Let's go to the Lord in prayer, please. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you not just for your written word that tells us the things we've seen this morning, but we thank you, Father, for the living word, Jesus Christ. In John 1, 1, you tell us in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. You, Jesus Christ, came to set us free, to be our savior, to pay that penalty of sin and death that we owed. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today who's not yet come to faith, that today would be the day where they turn from their sin and to you as the Savior. I pray, Lord, for the rest of us who have received that good news of grace. Would we not be those who sit all armored up, but, Father, would we do what you've called us to do, to stand on the front lines, to oppose our enemy, to stand firm, to be the messengers of the gospel, to take the good news out, Lord, what better week than this one where so many in the world are thinking of Good Friday and Easter and what does it mean? Would we, Lord, point them to the Prince of Peace, the one who came and conquered sin, death, and Satan. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.